Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. So it is day 62, and we're recording this, the 32nd uh, legislative session. It is Saturday. Uh, Sunday. March 21st. Sorry, Sunday, March 21st. Um, and we want to talk a little bit about just kind of like what session has been doing so far. What are some of the big sort of trends and some of the big things that have to be focused on and kind of checking on where they're, how, I guess, how they're doing, where they are in the process. And we don't want to talk completely about Senator Laura Reinbold, uh, the kind of COVID denying and extreme right plastic face shield wearing uh, Republican senator who's been making everybody's life really uh, tough, I guess, in the Capitol for the last two months. She's really been sucking the oxygen out of the room. And, and you know, as part of the caucus of equals, she, they've been having trouble trying to figure out how to deal with her um, because she is she is technically part of the majority. She is the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. She's the co-chair of uh, Senate State Affairs. And, um, she, you know, she they've given her a lot of a lot of rope and uh she's just tied it in a giant knot so um it's like you know like a dog when you, you tie them up and they uh, wrap their leash around the um the picnic table legs you know yeah just, yeah. It's just, just they don't necessarily know what's going on but they're having a good time uh <laughs> yeah i think and uh so we'll, let's just play this clip i think it really sums up the uh the the whole uh, experience the, the laura reinbold experience thus far there's confusion in the workplace. I was I was told to leave a subcommittee room that I didn't know there was Senator, different policies. I'm rule you out of I am concerned. I'm rule you out of order, Senator. Going on uh, in regards to the the violating constitutional rights, Senator. I'm going to rule you out of order. That, that, that when you're isolating people and quarantining them, Senator, I am going to rule that's you a liability out of, issue. You're out of order. I would like to get something on record, Madam Chair. Senator. I'll let you speak one more time without knowing what you're going to say, but I think you're understanding. I'm going to rule you out or out of order if we're not on the agenda. Well, I will tell you there's liability issues, and I think that it's very important to discuss a liability. Senator Reinbold, out of order. So we're going to try not to get hung up on this thing. I feel like um, Senator Reinbold and, and the, a few of the other kind of people in her company really thrive on the attention. So sort of feeding them, I feel like, is... I think there's a lot of discussions about, like, whether or not it's, like, completely responsible to be covering her to the extent that we are. But... Um, but it's real. It's happening. You can't but just it's real. ignore it's ha- it. <laughs> exactly, right? You know, she's, she's the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, but... So I think we're going to try to put as much of a bow on this beast as we can, and uh, let's talk about some other stuff. So, so before we move on, I'm just, like kind of curious what happens to what happens if laura reinbold does get kicked out of the majority um does that change anything um you know if there's actual discipline that ever happens because of this um what does that do to the senate i mean that's a good question um first of all the mechanics of kicking somebody out of a caucus and taking away their committee chairmanships and everything like that has happened before it's happened to senator reinbold before actually so uh, you know when i was uh i think it was Oh, I can't remember what it was. 2016. Anyways, when she was in the House, at one point, she voted against the budget, got kicked out. So we've kind of been through this before. The question really for where it stands right now is what happens to the other far right senators who are kind of aligned with Reinbold? You know, do they uh, does she take them with her? Do they go along? Do they stick with the majority or what? And I think it's been a really sort of politically delicate process you know it's a microcosm of the bigger problem with the republican party which is i think that you know we've they've sort of um been flirting i guess with this sort of far right sort of um extreme hyper partisan sort of wing for a long time with the thinking that you know they'll always be uh on your side or you'll be able to kind of control them and direct this sort of energy and i think what we're finding is that it quickly got out of hand right so yeah i think there's like there's a there's there's definitely like i, I think a worry about political blowback from like all sorts of different directions but again you know the very real problem is is sort of in front of our eyes right now and so i think people are kind of starting to reckon with it and 
I wouldn't be surprised if we eventually saw action on that front, but I think it will still take more. I don't know what more, but it'll take more of, of her action to really push people in that direction. Now, the party is kind of an interesting uh, component in all this because you're right. There have been sort of like the, the more centrist Republicans have been kind of like run out in this sort of you're, you're with us or you're against us kind of mentality. And right. so they, they've sort of self-selected for the more Reinboldy uh, representatives and senators. And so, you know, at some point it's like, OK, well, what is what is this party? Um, I thought it was really interesting that they released like a big values statement this last couple of weeks here. Um, and maybe I'll just play a little clip of that too. That's <laughs> kind of, kind of fun. With our uncharted wilderness, our ever plentiful resources and our bountiful seas, Alaska remains a treasure for the bold. Our principles are as follows. We believe in governance that fits Alaska. We will fight for a state government that operates transparently remains accountable to the people, acts with integrity, and operates on a responsible budget that does not inhibit economic growth. This includes preserving our permanent fund for future generations, instituting an effective spending limit, and opposing a statewide income tax. We believe in restoring an Alaska open for business. This includes fighting for our right to engage in responsible resource development protecting our fishing and tourism industry and developing the infrastructure and physical solutions needed to attract more industry and jobs. We believe every Alaskan deserves equal treatment under the law. We will fight for an Alaska where each lawful vote counts, where law enforcement has the resources to keep our community safe, where all life is protected and justice is served upon those who unlawfully harm others. With these principles in mind, we commit ourselves to restoring the greatness of Alaska. We have long called ourselves the last frontier, and in these times, that creed deserves renewed meaning. I find it, it's very weird. I mean, I, I guess it, I mean, it makes some level well, of sense not, to at least put out some priorities because they hadn't up until this point. But the fact that, like, you know, people pointed out that they don't mention the dividend in there. They just mentioned the permanent fund for future generations, which is really the talking points of people who have been supportive of cutting the dividend or reducing the dividend, excuse me. Um, so I don't really know what they're doing, but I, it kind of speaks, I think, to the difficulty it takes to bring together so many different sort of directions in that party, which, you know, you have you know, resource development and, and anti-income taxers, but you also have, like, these incredibly populist, sort of, like, extraordinarily socially conservative people who like the dividend, you know, who like this sort of socialist sort of payout. <laughs> okay, all right, so so Laura Reinbold, you, you, we talked a little bit about, um, I think that that's really tied into this whole idea of, like, how the legislature is hand, handling COVID. So, um, you know, in the building right now, we've had this huge outbreak. There's something like, uh, you know, I don't even know the numbers off the top of my head. I think 29 people that were like in quarantine last I checked. Mm -hmm. maybe, maybe I mean, it's have, changing every day. So and like at least nine people that tested positive for COVID, mm -hmm. probably more. Um, I talked to a couple of friends who are staffers. You know, one of my friends, their whole family got sick. So, you know, we're not acknowledging that splash zone that, you know, when we talk about the cases at the Capitol, we're also infecting our community here in Juneau, which is a little bit like not great for those of us who live here. Um, the, uh, you know, and, and I, I do have a lot of friends up there in the Capitol building and they're, they aren't getting, they don't feel like they're getting the information in a timely manner. You know, sometimes I'm hearing about things before they are, or Twitter is hearing about things before they are. They learn about their, their, their work environment from Twitter. Uh, instead of from like a, a, an email going around the building. You know, people are coming into offices unmasked. There haven't been any fines issued that I'm aware of. Um, and there's just a lot of different, there's a lot of different levels of like how people treat this uh, virus, uh, regardless of the rules that are, that have been set by legislative council. There's a whole like continuum of what people see as like an acceptable risk in their own sort of personal behavior, right? So there are people who are masking, who are social distancing, who are like taking every single thing seriously. And then there's people who aren't on the other end and there's something kind of in between the whole way. And so there are some people who may wear a mask in the hallways, but don't wear them in, in, in meetings or, you know, or don't wear them in closed door meetings and caucuses and stuff like that. And 
So it becomes this like incredibly sort of big patchwork of stuff that is just like it's like limping along because and I think it's really one of the things that I keep or that came across my radar on on Friday was that the Idaho legislature which had been expected to shut down or wrap up next week is going to shut down for three weeks to because they have their own COVID outbreak. So just as they were reaching their own finish line, COVID set them back. And so the very real health impacts, but there's also like huge impacts on just like how business gets done now and, and everything can kind of come crashing down. And then also you end up with some people in the hospital. So it's just like the fact that people are um, not continuing to not take it like seriously. And the fact that people are, uh, in the dark, I think it's just incredibly, incredibly frustrating. Yeah, it has some really interesting policy implications, you know, like health impacts aside, um, you know, these are the people who write our laws, write the rules that we all live under, and they're ignoring their own rules, right? So, right. like, how much do they value a system of rules? And, and how much do we all value that system of rules? And, um, you know, on a micro scale, we're seeing, uh, play out in this COVID policy debate, kind of the the broader societal problems we all deal with of like, there yes, there are rules. And yes, there are people who are not going to follow those rules. And what do we do about that right. prob- problem? And, and, you know, and are some of the rules, are some of the rules unjust? Are some of the rules, do some of the rules go too far? Do we mm-hmm. want to protect people's medical privacy? You know, that kind of thing. And so there's some, there's some good questions being raised, but like, from the from the policy perspective, it's really fascinating for me to see them just like grapple with that and fail so like spectacularly. Right, right. Um, you know, I think there's been a discussion about uh, what it will take to reach herd immunity in the building. Uh, I think right as of this week, they have about half of the people have been received at least their first dose of the vaccine. Um, you know, it takes another month to get the second dose right, so we're already looking near the end of session so i mean i don't think anything is significantly going to change as far as things getting more and more relaxed in this in the building um but you know i think there's a big push for people to get vaccinated in there and um when they say half of the people have received their first vac dose i i think you like well that means the other half haven't received their first dose and they've made you've gone through some pretty um big hoops to make the vaccine available to them right and so they've the decided that, not to Right. So that it means really that half decided somewhere less, somewhere less than half decided not to get the vaccine. And I, th- I think that's going to be a really big and interesting issue moving forward. I know we, we look at that in the state right now. You know, you are seeing a lot of areas where vaccine allocations are going untaken. Right. In the Matsu Valley, it's, you know, very the vaccination rate is lowest in the state. And. So I think there's going to be like the that issue is going to be the next step to get through is just how do we deal with the disinformation, right, um, about yeah. the virus. Yeah, so the, the Legislative Council meeting from this last week where they extended um, the testing in the building, kind of recognizing that they have an outbreak and they need to take it seriously, was, you know, it was really notable for the Laura Reinbold-iness of it all. Um, but there was, you know, I there the, the thing to keep in mind is that a majority of people really do take it seriously. And a majority of people think that the measures they're taking are appropriate. Um, and I think it's really, um, it's really important to keep in mind, you know, that a lot of people um, have in the building have lost friends and family to COVID. So it's not a joke to them. There are people, um, you know, like uh, this clip from Senator Lyman Hoffman, who comes from the Bethel area, you know, rural Alaska really has been hit incredibly hard by um covid and so you know for the, a lot of people it's not a joke and it's been the, the the things have been really serious and you know in listening to this clip you know you can really hear um just how much emotion is in his voice i think here it, it's really just personal to him and, and everybody else you know i think that uh, the uh herd immunity is something that we should be achieving trying to achieve um for the safety of all of the workers in this building and in particular all of their family members as well because uh, if uh, we have many young people in this building that are staffers they go home at night uh, to their family and friends and uh, by uh, achieving herd immunity I think we're giving greater protection to not only everybody in this building but their family members as well 
yeah, that's yeah. I I really like Lyman Hoffman. He's uh, he's just good work and has uh, been at it a long time. Um, yeah. I'm a little I'm a little biased. My dad uh, my dad grew up with his uh, wife up in this little mining camp up north of Bethel in a you know no. going, going to school in a one room schoolhouse up in Nyack. Uh, oh, cool. So yeah, so there I got a little bit of a family connection there. Yeah. Um, but it's nice to see someone looking out for the people who are working in the building because I feel like a lot of them feel like are not getting that respect from some of the legislature. Right. So that's kind of the COVID sort of story as it is sort of is at this point. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, the thing to keep in mind, right, is that all this can really change uh, incredibly quickly, right? And it can be a lot better a lot soon, you know, soon, or it could be a lot worse. And I guess we'll just have to see right and so speaking of a lot better or a lot worse uh there's also the budget going on this year are they doing um, that this year yeah they got to do it every year no they're what <laughs> <laughs> i know i i as much as we like to goof or talk about uh uh biennial budgeting and all of the sort of different ways we could write budgets we, this is the best worst way we've found to do it and we got to do it every year so the kind of the big sort of broad strokes of it, right, is that Alaska doesn't have any money or it doesn't have it has a lot of money, but it doesn't have a lot of money that it can easily spend. And we have a budget that is sort of hard to cut now because we've cut it for a whole bunch of years and we've kind of reached the point where it's not politically possible to cut a whole lot more. And um, and then we also have a dividend, too, we like to pay out. And so um if you were to erase the dividend, which I'm not suggesting, but this, I think it's sort of an important point to make, is that if you erase the dividend, our budget would be about balanced right now. If you have a $1,000 dividend, it's about about $800 million to $500 million a deficit. If you want to pay more than that, then the deficit grows and your future deficits grow. So they kind of have all these big questions that are kind of coming together right now, and they don't really – the biggest thing is they don't really have like a way to easily – sort of cover that deficit in the ways they've done in the past. And so the the way they might do it this year is they'll pay it out of the permanent fund uh, earnings reserve account, which has this sort of like kind of domino effect of everything else, you know, so then all of a sudden your future deficits are, are bigger, you're, you have smaller, you have less money to cover it. Um, that there's all, we could talk about the, the impacts yeah. of that. And forever. we've talked we've but, talked about yes. this a lot, right? So I mean, people can kind of go back if they're if they're really interested in digging into the to permit fund stuff and catch some of our old episodes about. Yeah, there's a pretty good know, animation like, that I saw someone do <laughs> a little while ago about it. <laughs> that was fun. Okay, so I'll post that in the show notes in case people need a primer on 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 all this stuff. But basically, Alaska has, in, in a nutshell, we have just we have sort of collectively decided that we uh, don't like collecting revenue. Uh, we do like paying out large sums of money, uh, and we're super into spending down all of our savings. Yep. So that's our fiscal situation, and and balancing the budget becomes hard. Um, and and projections for future budgets include giant holes and uh, question marks. Yeah, and the basically the plan to fill them is a giant hole and question marks. Like there's not. Because, you know, any any sort of solution to this, you know, reducing the dividend, continue, continued rejections of the dividend, new revenue f through the form of like an income tax or even oil taxes are, aren't popular. Cutting cutting government, as we've seen, is not super popular at this point because it is like, you know, we're, we are to the point we are, where we are like deciding whether or not to keep our left hand. Um, so so it's just tough. And so here's this clip um, is actually from a few weeks ago. Uh, the problem is, uh, again, is that because these discussions are so hard, there really hasn't been a lot of discussion out in the open on them so far. So this is kind of um, sort of sort of sets up where we are and where we're going. And I think kind of the, the problems with where we are and where we're going. OK. And who's in who is this? So this is oh, this is the Office of Management and Budget Director Neil Steiniger. And he's uh, talking with um, uh, Representative Bryce Edgeman. Great. So. All of this during an election year, presumably. Otherwise, we're going to have a fall special session to do some of this because in order to implement any kind of a new major revenue, we need leg time. And as many of us around this table who've been around the legislature for some time know, there's at least an 18-month, if not a 24-month leg time in putting a significant revenue measure in place. 
the difficulty of putting a revenue uh, measure in place during the COVID era, I think is um, self-revealing. Um, I'm having really a uh, hard time understanding how this could be a plan when there's no steps to get from point A to point B in front of us. And knowing that uh, the votes, the constitutional amendments, Mr. Chairman, wouldn't really, assuming they were to pass, wouldn't come into play until FY24. That's calendar year 2023, which takes us out a few years. There just seems to be not only a fiscal gap here, but a gap in logic. And I, I, I don't understand how this can be presented to me or to my constituents or to any of us in a way that suggests that this could actually happen. I'm at loss. Can you like help take me again from FY22 to FY23? And how are we gonna fill that $1.2 billion gap? Um, through the chair, Representative Edgman, you know, I'm not necessarily the political expert to discuss whether, you know, in an election year versus not. Um, what I can tell you, you know, just from the number side of this is this isn't a, a, a simple or easy task. I acknowledge that. And I acknowledge that the framework that we've put forward does not solve the entire problem. But we've put forward the framework that we think needs to be solved first. A lot of the discussions around the solutions to this $1.2 billion problem have been occurring um, just because this 10-year plan doesn't list out a specific solution doesn't mean that people aren't discussing solutions. Um, those solutions just are not ones that can be implemented simply through the state's operating budget. Um, there are solutions that will be bigger than that. You know, discussions around the major cost drivers that result in us having a, you know, $4.2 billion operating budget and the things that that push that up, you know, those aren't solutions that can be solved with, you know, transactional changes in an operating budget. They need to be much bigger discussions and there needs to be conversations about that before, you know, we land on how we solve this problem. And I, I do acknowledge there's a short time period between now and fiscal year 2023, and there is not enough money in the CBR to address that. Um, so, and there is, you know, very real timing considerations here. It's not, we're not trying to say that this is the absolute complete solution, but it is a step in the right direction. If I may editorialize for just a second here, that's the big problem that I have with this um, presentation, if you will. Not not that you're not doing a good presentation, I think you're doing a very fine presentation. It's just that we go back to the three majors, major cuts, major new revenue sources, or major overdrawing of the earnings reserve. And I see no plan for any of that in front of us at this point. I'd be interested to know if the governor is uh, planning some major new revenue proposal as we turn the corner into March, which uh, traditionally is around the midpoint of the session in a non-election year when generally a big ticket item like a revenue measure would come forward. I see no signs of that anywhere. Major cuts, I don't know where we can make major cuts without laying Alaskans off, without uh, severely harming the quality of, of life. Um, shutting schools down perhaps, you know, making major reductions to Medicaid, which we need to do in conjunction with the federal government. And then majorly overdrawing the earnings reserve for the permanent fund for a second consecutive year in FY23, I think it is gonna meet, uh, you know, significant resistance in the legislature. So I'm, I'm still struggling to follow where, you know, the exact steps involved in getting us from where we are today to next year to the year afterwards and realizing that we have votes that are gonna be presented to the people that'll take place, uh, you know, in the fall of calendar year of 2022 that further hinder our ability to make major decisions under the Dunleavy administration. No new revenues, we gotta consult people first. We've got a spending cap that's out there. If we do anything with the permanent fund dividend, we have to consult the people. But yet we as policymakers in the body that appropriates makes the, the big decisions on what gets funded and where it gets funded from. Sit here with an 
some essence, one hand tied behind her back. And it's, it's, this is just very difficult for me to reconcile all this. Thank you. Yeah, that's good stuff. So I think it's important to note here that uh, Representative Bryce Edgman there is, uh, you know, a former Speaker of the House. He's been in the legislature since 2007. Um, he knows his way around the process and around the budget and um, that he feels backed into a painted into a corner here, um, you know, is a pretty good indication of what the what, what they're working with um, in terms of options. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, the, the fact is, is that like, you know, not only are there the political realities of it that are, that make it difficult, um, but also the, you have the Dunleavy realities that make it difficult. That um, you know, Dunleavy sort of set these sort of fences on the debate that that really so um, you know constrain everything in that it, it makes it really difficult to even begin to talk about it because he said already that no new taxes without, without a vote of the people. Um, which actually, and if he's real, if we're really being clear about his plan, it's we have to pass a constitutional amendment that requires new taxes of the people in 2022, and then you could pass a new tax in 2024 by right. asking the people. And so it's just a sort of like unrealistically long, like runway to get any of this up, and that's assuming that any of it happens, right? And I think I love I love that like that's the I mean like that he's he's kind of doing that, but at the same time his answer to any question is like it's all on the table. We're we're open to we're listening to mm -hmm. everything. Everything's an option. We're gonna have a discussion about that. We're gonna talk about that. That's up for discussion, you know. And yeah. like the you can say it's up for discussion, uh, and then just completely make that discussion superfluous or you know or make yeah. that discussion unnecessary <laughs> i mean and, well, and what kind of discussion is there really going on under his idea right like what what have not these last several elections been you yeah. know and what has so I, you know it's just so frustrating that you know that it's just kind of this easy way out right and because i think there are legislators who really are willing to kind of stick their necks out on this right they are willing to say okay let's look at what it would take to do an income tax is it we don't even really know like we don't have a great idea of like what it would mean what it would how it would work what it you know would look like because nobody's somebody everybody's so afraid to even like begin to open up that discussion in any yeah. sort of serious way so well, it I, I think it, I think we should just, probably note yeah. that like that legislation has been introduced in the past, yes. right? It just hasn't gone anywhere. It doesn't mean it gets yeah a bunch of hearings and that sort of stuff. And so that that's what I think is difficult and sort of frustrating with it. And it's you know it's hard to to be a single legislator trying to push this idea where you know you have you yourself and a staffer or two staffers who can kind of look at this issue versus a governor's administration that has economists and and all these sort of people on board and. You know, the fact is that there's another hearing, too, and I didn't pull this one for this, but um, with Lucinda Mahoney, the um, Department of Revenue Commissioner, who admits that this whole plan doesn't actually work. You know, it doesn't, doesn't pencil out, you know, that, that, that they're going to have a huge gap in next year's budget. And I think that's sort of the difficulty here with it. The real interesting thing, though, is that you know, the, the state is on going to be on the receiving end for more than a billion dollars in federal stimulus money, right? So all of a sudden, you know, we kind of have a shiny new can that we can kick a couple times before it's going to run out of money. And um, so the question, I think, you know, and the realistic thing is, is that if Dunleavy is going to veto it, then we kind of have to work within those boundaries, right? If, if, if he's going to, if, you know, and you can't, you're not going to be able to override him. So there's kind of, I think, a little bit of real you know sort of reality with it too where it's like okay well if we can't if if he's gonna block us on any attempt to do this then what can we do right and i don't know i don't know what you can do but there's you know this sort of well that's the thing is like if he's if he's gonna block if he's gonna block every effort he needs to provide like okay this is the direction i want you to go but he's not giving them indication of the direction he wants to go other than like here's right. this big big question mark in the budget i mean maybe he's operating under the assumption that we're going to get more covid money from the government you know the conveniently uh -huh. the amount of covid money that we got is the same size as the question mark hole in this budget for next year maybe he already knew a billion dollars was yeah. gonna like materialize out of thin air Maybe we're just really lucky here. <laughs> you know, like, don't worry. Next year, a billion dollars will show up from somewhere. It'll be fine. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that, I mean, I, th- and I, so I think that there's sort of the, the, if that's sort of where they're going with it, right. If that, if they are so boxed in, then I guess, you know, yeah, start to have some of those conversations, you know, bring the, the weight of the legislature to sort of talk about that. And, you know, maybe we start talking about areas where there are potential savings, but, you know, like closing DMVs is not going to get us there. Right. And I think there is a really important discussion, right. About like what the future of the state is. And I think the problem with all of this, right. Is that it's so easy to quickly like zoom all the way out to where you, you all of a sudden you don't have any detail anymore. You're, you're talking about like zooming in like this kind of micro versus macro level of policymaking. And I think that's pretty fascinating because um, the, like in the big, picture sense we have this big budget picture that we need to grapple with and we need to make some big decisions about the shape of how our state operates uh not just for now but for you know years going forward how do we build a sustainable system that isn't just spending down our savings um but then you look at what the legislature is doing on a macro level and we're fighting over mask policies we're talking about dmvs which doesn't save us any money or make us any money uh you know it like it, we're, we're spending a ton of policy making energy and effort and time and money on these on these micro level policy decisions that really don't impact that macro level problem that we have. Right. And I think it's you know, it's because, you know, it's it's really hard, right, to have a large discussion about, you know, Medicaid and Medicare you know beneficiaries. It's hard to have a discussion about what K-12 education should look like it's a lot easier to fight about whether or not we're going to close a DMD. You know, I think, I think that's sort of, what is it called? The bike shed problem. You know, what color is the bike shed? And it, it's sort of this, this sort of uh, almost like mythical level of people bickering over what color, color a bike shed can be because it's the one thing that they kind of can really kind of wrap their hands around. They don't have any ideas about how to build a bike shed, but they can, they sure have an opinion yeah. about what a color it should be. <laughs> I mean, I think it's frustrating. And I think it's it's the sort of thing where it's, I think it comes down to leadership, right? I think that individuals, yeah, it's going to be incredibly difficult for, you know, a single representative to sit down and really map out the course of what Alaska should look like, right? And, you know, map out what our, you know, not only our education and healthcare policies look like, but also our road to transportation policies and all these sort of policies down the line. And it's, I don't know how you begin to break those out into sort of manageable things for, for, for actual human beings to start to digest and work through. Um, but the fact that the governor's just really not engaging on it and not helping and not sort of pulling people along is really, really telling, I think. And I think you look at stuff like, you know, the Department of uh, Health and Social Services split, one of the things we want to talk about today, too. You know, there, there's so li- the biggest issue there was that the la- there was lack of engagement from the people who are going to be affected by this policy change. And I think that's sort of if we I don't know what the right policy is, but the wrong one is is when we're not engaging people on, you know, how some of these services should be changed. You know, one of the one of the big questions that does feel like we've been spending a lot of time on is the question of the dividend. Like that's a that's definitely it's it's been. Uh, conversation over the last several legislative sessions. Um, it was a huge factor in the last election cycle. Um, and, you know, and, and the question of the dividend is basically what got Dunleavy elected, right? This promise that he's right. going to pay out massive dividends to everyone. And, uh, you know, that's, that had the scale of, of the dividend checks um, is, is something that does impact our budget. So what's, let's talk about a little bit about like what's going on right now with that dividend conversation. Not, kind of surprisingly not a lot or at least not a lot publicly right and that's i think kind of belies sort of the difficult ground that the legislature finds themselves on um i think the people who have been really mired in the numbers for a long time are are hardening against you know huge overdraws on the permanent fund so whether or not it is paying out for a dividend is kind of to them is not as important as how much we're taking out of the permanent fund to pay for everything. Right. And, and also we have money, you know, the permanent fund earns money. Right. And so there's sort of this whole kind of the really, the, the way I sort of boil it down is, is you have, you know, the size of the dividend, which I think, you know, if you're going to, people have said it before, but if there is ever a time to make a case for a big payout, direct payout to people, it's probably at the end of a 
or hopefully that towards you know the middle or end or whatever part of a horrible epi- economic um, downturn driven by the pandemic, right? Like there's probably some good argument for whether or not it's you know free reign to everybody and the size of it, you know that's a bigger conversation. But so you kind of have. I think at least a uh, a strong political call for it. The rainy day argument, right? Like this is our rainy day fund. Right. If this isn't yeah. a rainy day, what is? Right, exactly. And on the other end, you have people looking who are again sort of deep in the numbers who are looking at it and going, "Geez, like we are really getting close to like danger territory here." You know, market correction or market downturn, uh, a couple years of overspending, and all of a sudden we are like, "Boom, we're out of money right now." And so that is really kind of the big conversation here and i think the the just how on the edge the state is financially i think is not the not been really well understood because like right we have a billion dollars showing up from the federal government that's going to bail us out another time right and so um but yeah people who are looking at the numbers and this is so this clip is from uh, angela rodell she is the um, CEO of the Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation. Um, as the CEO, one of her big advocating points is like, look, we need some stability. We need some uh, direction and sort of some uh, certainty with the permanent fund. And we need to know like what you guys are doing with it. We need to know how much you guys want to spend out of it. We need to know all this because it impacts the kind of how we manage and invest the fund because it's not like a giant 60 something billion dollar savings account. It's like, you know, it's tied up in par- land and bridges. It's like part and, of a mall, yeah. you know? And, and so it's like all these, so it's, it's tied up in tons of different things. And so, you know, you can't turn around and sell a house in like a day, you know? And so there's sort of all these different things in it that make it complicated. And I think she paints a really good sort of picture about the risks of getting into it. Um, so let's play that. Uh, do you feel confident <laughs> It truly is an infinite asset, and and paired to that, are you concerned, like some of us are concerned, that if we uh, break the POMV rule, do you worry that if we break that rule of 5%, that we will open a floodgate, or, or if we will set a precedent that may be hard to stop, and, and it would threaten the infiniteness of the permanent fund? You're the chair representative, Will. I am confident that the same vision that existed in Alaskans in 1976 exists in all of you and in all of us. Um, I do worry. I came to this state in 2011, 10 years ago. This is my 10th year in a row in front of House Finance. It's my sixth legislative session. When I came as Deputy Commissioner of Revenue, We had a lot of money. And I have watched this debate now happen year in and year out for 10 years. And so, yes, I do worry that if we don't follow a POMV spending rule, it will open floodgates. People are hurting, there's no question. Uh, You walk around this town and you can see the effects of the pandemic on Juneau. It is not the same place you came to a year ago or two years ago by any stretch of the imagination. And yet I wonder what are we creating for ourselves in three, four, five years, in 10 years? Um, And do we have a place for your two-year-old or your five-year-old to grow up in? So we really have to ask ourselves, what do we want Alaska to be, not in 10 years, but what do we want it to be in 23, 24, 25? Because the CARES Act money is not gonna last for a long time. It's here now, it's helping. I sit on the Juneau Airport Board. We talked about the fact that we have CARES Act money for 20 till 2024 to help Uh, keep that airport going. It's not owned by the state of Alaska. It's not operated by the state of Alaska. And yet we have a $3 million deficit this year, which would have taken the entire fund balance. So what happens to a community like Juneau if the airport has to close? 
And so we have to really be asking ourselves, what do we have for 23, 24, 25? And that's a really hard place to be because it means saying no sometimes. It, it, I don't envy you guys at all. I have the easy job in all of this. I get to look at markets. I get to invest. Things are looking good. We're at 15% for the fiscal year. And maybe I just made your job that much harder by having those kind of returns. Yeah, that's really, uh, well, first of all, I didn't know the airport was in trouble. So that's a little, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a fun bonus from that clip. So thanks for sharing that with me. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's really, um, um, you know, hearing her speak uh, helps bring some, some of the gravity to the situation, I think. Yeah, so I think, I mean, the one, it's kind of gone underappreciated this session, I think, but you know, we've said it a couple of times that, you know, oil is no longer the king of the budget anymore. I think when I got here, I got here actually about the same time Angela Rodell did. Um, but I remember, you know, looking at the budget where it was like 98%, 90%, 95% were coming from oil. Um, you know, uh, uh, the permanent fund is, is, is now our source of oil, right? And it can spit out, you know, $5 billion a year. I mean, it's a, money wells pumping money forever. Yeah, about three, $3 billion a year. And it's, um, it's significant, right? And so, you know, the question is, you know, we talk so much about oil and, and protecting that industry, right? But, you know, we really need to be treating the permanent fund in the same way, almost, you know, where we are, you know, what's a responsible investment strategy? What's the appropriate things? Because it is, it's our future. Yeah. The fact is, is that we'll never be able to raise enough money from like individual income taxes to pay for the scope of government that we do have. And so you need to have some other sort of tax. And so, you know, oil did it for a long time and now it's the permanent funds turn right and yeah it would be great if the permanent fund was a lot bigger you know and it'd be great if it was x y or z but it's kind of we have what we have and we've got to make it work we we also can't keep riding a unicycle right we we can't yeah. keep like building a budget on one primary income source and then freaking out when that one's gone like so the you know we relied on oil so much and then um you know we were able to through through incredible foresight of, of some some folks in this in the 60s and 70s we were able to like save some of that money build up this sovereign wealth fund um, you know Jay Hammond described it as turning oil money uh, uh, turning oil wells pumping oil for a finite period of time into money wells pumping money for infinity right and so this you know it, which is a great idea and which is like hopefully the direction we can go I mean isn't that great I mean it's like I mean, it's such a cool idea, right? Because you look at the massive amount of wealth that was accrued during the pandemic, right? It's 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 amazing that how how rich people with money became, right? People who already had money and were able to invest have done extraordinarily well this this pandemic, right? Yeah. While a lot of people who are kind of just on the streets are hurting, and this is a way for Alaskans at least to sort of tap into that, right? For us Alaskans to be able to go and say like, look, we're we're gonna go and be the same kind of sort of heartless investors and make money. And as you know, it's great, right? Like the, the, you know, I think if everybody could kind of be able to get to that point where it's like, we don't have to, you know, to, to, to be taxing ourselves as much, right? Like it's great. Like if we can find a way for what we have to pay for what we want is, it's a great model, right? It's a great way for it to work, but it only works if you don't spend it all, right? I think the income taxes are an important part of the equation. Like it's, it, I, I've done a bunch of reading and writing on, on like earnest screening. I, I agree. And, just for real quick, I don't. I agree that we should have an income tax. Well, and not just that we should have one. That we should have had one. Like we should have had yeah. one for all of these years. Like if we'd had an income tax for the last thirty years, you know, all of that money would have been saved up or spent on government or not taken from the permanent fund. And our permanent fund would be much larger right now. We might not even like have this question in front of us because it might just be spitting out the the money we need to supplement the budget. Um, you know. 
we might be instead of arguing over like what departments to cut, we would be arguing over what to spend our money on, you know, and, and right. that that kind of problem is is the problem that you want. You know, you want people arguing whether we should have a swing pool in uh, Ketchikan or in Petersburg, you know, like where's that capital expenditure going to yeah. go? Who, who gets the new uh, pavement? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but instead, we're we're just like arguing over who gets the last popsicle. Right. I know. And I was, you know, I saw some of those final huge capital budgets go out that were massive, right? And it was just, it was cool to be able to look through them and see, oh, a pool here and a new school roof there and all this sort of stuff. And it's the sort of stuff that like makes meaningful, long-term significant differences for people in those communities, right? To be able to have, you know, recreation facilities or, or healthcare facilities or whatever is awesome right and it, it makes those communities more ideal to live in it makes it better for people to live there it does all these sort of great things that we don't get to do right now well yeah like right now we're fighting over whether or not money make offices that currently make money for the dmv should be closed to save like half a million dollars yeah and we've already closed profitable pieces of government you know things like the ocean rangers program that are just like yeah. kind of <laughs> like can, let's get rid of this to save zero dollars right <laughs> we'll still collect the taxes on it but we won't p do the program anymore so speaking of ocean rangers and dmv closures um you know the whole and really the the sort of the sideboards of this whole budget discussion sort of artificial sideboards created by dunleavy um, the legislature this year has been continuing on with the very uh, tough task and important task of holding some oversight and some accountability on the governor. Uh, we saw this sort of be the common theme through the interim where the House eventually had so many hearings that were making the governor, government look bad that they, the government stopped attending them. Um, but the big one this year, um, you know, in the sort of same kind of vein of all these sort of sole source, sole source contracts that have proved not to be a good idea or even unethical. Or the elimination um, of fines. The elimination of fines, the, the API, you know, you just run down a huge list, right? Um, the governor's office at the start of the, or late in December, announced plans to uh, divide the Department of Health and Social Services into the Department of Health and Department of Family and Social Family and Community Services, excuse me, um, by executive order. So they, they don't need legislative input on it or don't have to get legislative input. Legislature could stop it. Uh, huge, you know, huge thing. This is the Department of Health and Social Services, huge, monumental department, extraordinarily expensive. It has its problems. But we never really heard why this plan actually fixed those problems, other than, you know, we had a guy who, uh, Department of Health Health and Social Services Commissioner Adam Crum, who was appointed sort of uh, despite concerns about his lack of experience, saying that he didn't have the capacity to be able to run the whole thing. And that's why they needed to split it up. So um, wow. even though the House started late, they really came in um, swinging to look into this whole plan and hear from people that were affected by it and i uh, started to sort of get the gears rolling on stopping it um which got the governor to surprise he pulled the plug on it yeah so this wasn't a question of like this this wasn't a question of addressing an urgent issue this was a question of like why are we doing this like okay okay we're yeah. op open to the idea but let's have some reason behind it yeah let's at least make sure it's it's the right idea right because Basically, you know, once you just start dividing things, it's it's kind of hard to put it back together. Well, right? it's also and expensive, right? I mean, you're, we're extraordinarily, yes. yeah, and we're we're spending a ton of money. We're creating a bunch of new positions, and we're probably uh, going to cause some chaos for people who receive those services in the middle of a pandemic. By the way, too. Yeah. So it, this all would have been effective on July first. All right. So we'll listen to this clip here and and uh, talk about it a little bit more. Yeah. So uh, just to set it up, um, this is Representative Liz Snyder. She's the co-chair of the House and Social Services Committee. Um, and here she is introducing um, the, the, the resolution that they would have needed to pass to halt the executive order. Um, so this is like several, this is like the day, two days before they actually halted the executive order. The questions we have asked have been direct, intentional, and reasonable. What is the plan? How have stakeholders been engaged? What will it cost? What is the evidence supporting this plan? 
and what are the metrics for success? Knowing the department's successes, I think many of us can agree that the department, for all of its fantastic services and accomplishments, also has room for improvement, as we all do. Improvement in efficiencies, improvement in timely, thorough, and compassionate care for Alaskans, and improvement in access and communication. I understand that these needs for improvement are what motivated the creation of EO 119. These proposed changes would automatically go into effect if the legislature does not vote to disapprove by March 21st, less than two weeks away. These proposed changes would also coincide with changes currently outlined in the FY22 budget, including the elimination of over 100 department positions affecting the Division of Public Assistance, Juvenile Justice, and the Alaska Psychiatric Institute. While it is clear that changes need to be made to the operations and possibly to the organization of the department to improve services and functionality, it is not clear that bifurcation and the addition of several new high-level positions is the answer. And make no mistake, if we get this answer wrong, the victims of the fallout most likely aren't most of us sitting in this room today. Those negatively impacted are vulnerable Alaskan children in unsafe homes. Children and families who don't know where their next meal is going to come from. A caretaker of an Alaskan with mental health challenges who has nowhere to turn. Elders facing increased uncertainty about how they will live out their golden years. And the father and his son who is struggling with addiction and finding treatment. I want to keep these Alaskans in the forefront of our minds today. We owe it to them to get this right. The resolution is not a complete disapproval of department reorganization. Rather, it's a way to give us the time needed to make the best decision for Alaska. While the discussions in this committee have been a great starting point, they are just that, a starting point. There are still many questions that have been left unasked and unanswered. We need to give the public, stakeholders, and the legislature the time to ask them, and the department and administration the time to answer them. With the looming deadline of the EO, we have not been afforded that time. Yeah, so, um, you know, this is right when they're in the middle of raising a bunch of legal issues with the, the measure, as well as process issues. Uh, I think it's two days later, and then the governor announces, like, moments before they're supposed to have this hearing in the Senate um, Finance Committee um, that they have pulled the bill or pulled this plan. Um, they say it's because there are some unforeseen drafting errors. Um, I think it's because the votes were starting to be there to oppose it overall. Um, so the, so it would have been a sort of really stunning defeat if it had happened, but, um, I, you know, there have been a lot of concerns just about the process of it. I think that to, you know, I do think that there is you know, like, like Snyder and a lot of people other have said is that there are issues with how the departments run and how you know ways to improve it but you know the question is is this the right way is this even a good idea and they just really haven't been answered to any sort of idea here so i think like in the world where like we don't really see any sort of like we're looking at the legislature most of our discussion today has been about things that they're not really doing or not doing well um i think this oversight role is really important and i think that i'm glad to see that there are sort of some good some productivity something that's not laura reinbold getting up you know getting ruled out of order um is that's going on and i think that's you know i think that's an important role of the legislature here yeah i mean this to me is is a little bit like an indicative of the the dunleavy conversation mode you know like his version of having a conversation is telling you what's going to happen and like very rarely does he mm -hmm. Does he have a have a meaningful discussion about a thing and then make a decision about it? Like it, it's it's all kind of this, like here's what we're gonna do style of leadership. Um, you know, in this case, it's pretty clear that he caught the legislature off guard, that they that they weren't prepared to make an argument for it, and it was just kind of like we're gonna do this thing. Um, and the legislature's reaction was appropriate. You know, it's like, why didn't we have this discussion? Why aren't we invested in this? Why aren't we all working towards this together and making a decision about like w what needs to happen and what needs to change to make this department better? That's the kind of communication that's lacking, frankly, from the from the Dunleavy administration is that they just don't work well with other people because they're they 
it's father knows best, right? Yeah. It's, it's like I'm the principal of the school and I've decided whimsically today that this is the new thing that we're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it is totally, yeah, totally symbolic of it. I think, it, yeah. And I think um, I'm glad that people, the, you know, honestly, I'm glad the legislature organized the way it did, right? Because if it had been a Republican led house, I don't think that they would have raised these discussions, right? I don't think they would have done it to the same level. You know, if this is a committee that had been chaired by David Eastman or something like that, you know, like what would have this com- you know, would there would, would we have even had this conversation? Would we we'd be going forward with a um you know, split of the department that would have ended up in the courts because that's sort of where they, you know, they recognize that they this would have could have been this could have been you know, someone could have brought a legal challenge against this and probably would have won. And it would have been one more, you know, black eye for the administration here. And so I think that's a tough thing that is this feels so frustrating with me with how Dunleavy has sort of been a governor, right? Is that it feels like an enormous lost opportunity. You know, there's a huge opportunity cost that we've spent, you know, opposing the sort of efforts, you know, his sort of efforts and trying to find some more like you know cooperation between everybody more buy-in and um you know imagine what we could have been doing this last two years two to three years to talk about where our fiscal picture is going uh, if we if not for all of this i think i think about that all the time because i'm involved in the recall effort and it's you know it it's a it feels like negative work it feels like the kind of thing that is like a you know, you're trying to get rid of something rather than build something. You're trying to, um, you know, make a change. It feels necessary, but um, but it also just doesn't feel like forward movement. It feels like kind of trying to hit the undo button. I yeah, I really, I'm really curious where he, what he's thinking about next year, because I guess we'll probably start seeing this next summer, kind of the beginnings of that. But you know, the the ballot measure two. You know, his own sort of alienation of the far right, his, you know, difficulty engaging anybody, really. You know, I don't know what kind of constituency there is for a guy who promised the PFD and then failed to deliver it, right? Like, so, you know, and and not only failed to deliver it on it, but really failed to even make any sort of meaningful movement in that direction. And I guess, so we'll see, right? I mean, the House could come and... You know, they, the the there could be shifts politically this year to to pay out make a it easier five thousand dollar PFD right. here. So yeah. you know whether that happens, I guess, is going to be the big deciding factor here. But you know, I just I think it'd be I think it'd be really tough to run again, honestly. And I, I wonder if there's some calculus that is like, well, uh, you know, getting involved, going after Murkowski is maybe a better parachute for me, an escape hatch on this sort of whole thing. But it seems um, like it seems like he'd be running against his own Department of Administration commissioner if he did that. I mean, the Department of Administration commissioner who came up with the least popular budget idea of the session, right? So, you know, I I am curious, you know, and this is now this is like getting into like into the weeds of conspiracy th- T- territory. Take me into like, the weeds. But I've heard speculation that you know maybe he'll cut cut her loose at some point you know and maybe they'll kind of with a wink and a nod say look at this dmv thing it sure was unpopular look at all this weird stuff she's been doing with soul source budgets that's all her fault you know and then and and sort of preserve a senate run for himself i don't i don't know i think that that is that's connecting a lot of that's dots. interesting strategy though. but but i think i think it i think what is hard to overlook is just how fractured the republican party really is right because if you get in any of these races and you have, say if it's dumb, say if it's, okay, so say it's Dunleavy, Reinbold, Walker, and Al Gross, right? For governor? For governor. Like, how does that play, how does that even begin to play out, right? I think Walker's everybody's number two pick, almost, you know, like. Maybe. So I, but like, you know, and so I, I just, you know, I think it's really you know, I think Walker could win that race, honestly. You know, I think so. And, and, and same with the Senate, right? Like, what happens if it's you know Shabaka, Joe Miller, 
uh, Lisa Murkowski and Al Gross, right? Like you just Al Gross will run for both of them. But like, you know, just you're kind of your throwaway Democrat, your party line Republican, and your hardcore Republican, and then your independent Republican, right? Is basically what these would look like. And how does it? How does any of that play out? And how does like what is happening now factor into any? I mean, that's kind of what I'm excited about is that no one really knows how right. any, how any of this is going to play out under like this top four primary system. It's it's a, it's awesome. It's I love a, it. It's a new system. Yeah, it's very exciting. So we could have we're going to have four people running for governor. We're going to have four people running for you know for these seats. Is and and we're going to have ranked choice voting between those those people, and it's going to change the 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 math of the election in a ways that people don't yet understand, um, which is going to change the way people run. It's going to change the way people camp. You know, it's it's going to, it's going to change the way people campaign. It's going to change the way people vote. Um, right. I'm excited about it. Not not just because I worked on it, like on trying to get it there, yeah. and because I believe in it. But I'm I'm excited about it because it's a change. You know, and I feel like yeah. we've kind of see, we've kind of been down the road of, that we've that we were on, and kind of I, I feel like we just sort of reached this thing where everyone knows the outcome. Everyone. Ex- everyone knows what it what it produces and it's kind of this more extreme and extreme variety of candidate and i'm just hoping this is something different yeah and i i agree i think that um you know creating more room for the independent even if they are you know an independently minded republican is good you know i think it's been really one of the really interesting things this session has been um you know as partisan as it is coming in both chambers seem to have be more uh, seem to be more open to uh, minority legislation minority ideas to see stuff like moving that has minority members names next to it is is neat i think you look at some of the votes here and there not all of them obviously but some here and there where all of a sudden the 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 line is cutting across caucuses and i think that means that people are able to apply their own experience knowledge values their own sort of unique district priorities to the conversation and and be able and break away from what you know the lobbyists or what the 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 power players are are telling them to do and i think that's like a really valuable and really cool sort of thing i I think i think that lobbyists will still have some influence but i think that the the parties will have will will have less of a lockdown on things and that's what's really that's what really got me interested in this is that like alaska has such a strong independent streak and uh i'm really anxious to see that i'm I'm really excited to see that unleashed you know i'm excited to see Mm -hmm. a bunch of independent candidates running i'm excited to see you know i think what's going to happen in the next couple years is i think we're going to start seeing new parties emerging because now you can take Mm -hmm. you know like three weird independent people you can you can have the muskox party right you can have yeah you know that that group of of legislators years ago that kind of formed the muskox party Mm -hmm. uh, around alaskan uh around alaskan issues can, can actually have a party with those stated values and as a platform and say we're the muskox party we're going to run as muskox uh, we're going to run as Mus- yeah. muskoxen and if you like the idea of protecting you know protect we're going to do this this and this and if you like those ideas vote for us yeah and, and honestly too i think you know i think that there is a huge market for it you know a muskox republican party would be you know, I think I think you would find a lot of like people you think of as like traditionally progressives, you know, kind of on that side. I don't think it's, you know, and I think that's kind of why there's a little there's there was some progressive pushback to it. Right. Because it's like Democrats are kind of finally sort of car- feeling like they're carving out more of an area of the state. But <laughs> sorry, which, <you> know, <laughs> I know. But that's that's the argument. Right. <laughs> And and I think if if there's some room in there, you know, I think if there was if there was sort of a, you know, kind of middle of the road progressive party kind of like that, I think there would be some Democrats who would be interested in something like that. And I think that's good for everybody that we have kind of more of a marketplace of ideas where you can kind of see more representative representation. Right. And I think that is what's so, I think, frustrating with it is that, you know, so there was this hearing this week about the binding caucuses right and they talked about how in the good old days you know we just would agree and we would agree to vote everything from the democrats down it's like that's not any better than having people agree to vote for the budget now like agreeing to oppose everything that another party does 
is also bad. Right. That sucks. Like, it's not a good way to, to legislate. Especially um, if that party comes up with a good idea. And it's like, sorry, we have yeah. to oppose that because our rule is that we oppose everything that you come up with, even yeah. if it's a good and idea. So, it's, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, and that's, I've seen that. Like, that's how the budget has always worked. And, and to not have room in there to, to have other ideas and to be able to work across lines like that is really frustrating. And, and I think you, you know, I can think of like the times where I've really seen minds actually change during the course of a debate. And I can only count them on like one hand. And, you know, honestly, one of them was during this, um, during this, uh, the hearing on the, um, the department of health and social services split, you know, you saw Republicans go, wait a second, this sounds bad to me. I, I, I at the very least have questions like that's that's more than we've had in a long time and I think um, that's why for me like that moment and this this sort of rejection of it is so important to, when we talk about oversight and 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 sort of a the importance of like an adversarial role between different branches of government yeah. um, the other interesting thing that's going to come out of ballot measure two is is with more candidates in the mix um, from from what is will probably be a broader political spectrum um, you, you know, we're going to have ideas on the table that we haven't had before. So, you know, the last election cycle in Alaska, I don't think there was a single statewide candidate running that supported Medicare for all. And that's there are pockets of Alaska that very much support that and would vote for a candidate. Basically, you know, like a one issue candidate says, I'm I'm for Med I, I support Medicare for all. And that person could then have a, a voice in this larger debate of like, well, why do you oppose this? And why do you, you know what's what's wrong with this idea of getting people affordable health care and um, <laughs> you know I think that I think that you'll see I think that we'll see some um, you know maybe that candidate doesn't win but to have that be as be a part of the conversation uh, in in the in the races and in the debates like that seems really important to me right I agree yeah okay well cool the future is bright I like cool. it <laughs> yeah so yeah, I, th I think, uh, how do we wrap this thing Laura, up? Laura, you're out of order. <laughs> so you want to end with Laura Einfold again? Yeah. <laughs> you just want to hear that clip one more time? I just love that clip so much. Okay, all right. Senator Reinbold, out of order. Concerned Will you're out of order. Senator. You're out of order, Alaska. This whole dang place is out of order.